We have three readings today. The first is on page 596 of your Pew Bibles and is from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The second reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 48, on page 853 of the Pew Bibles. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And the third reading is from Galatians chapter one, verses one to six, on page 942. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ 
and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. This is the word of the Lord. Today is the final in a series in Galatians. We're going to roam around the whole book, which means that having a Bible in front of you, I'll always give you the reference. You'll be roaming back and forth, but there's only six chapters. Or you could just listen in, but try to follow the words, because the words, I believe, um, support the assertions that are being made by me and the things that I've learnt over the series. Um, Let's pray. Father, teach us now, teach us to live free, teach us to be, be free as sons and daughters of the living God, and teach us, guide us and shape us so that we might use the freedom that we have to serve others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we spent quite a few weeks in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, It's now time to sum up this magisterial book, to tell you a few things that I've learnt, and apply it to life, although it's not easy. Uh, What is the thing that we use like they did then? It's not easy to answer that question. So how do you do it? How do you apply this passionate enigmatic six chapters, especially since our world is so different from their world, 50 AD to 2022. It's not just the time frame, it's the um, epochs of God, the eros of God that they were working in. You can't get much different between our world and their world, and yet some things remain the same. God is still in heaven, Jesus Christ is still Lord, and there's still such a thing as sin and the human heart, a slavery of a kind, dissensions, power struggles, those things still exist. Context for first-timers, you're going to get the whole book in one sitting. It's 50 AD, new Gentile, that is non-Jewish believers, were tempted to return to Torah, which is the Jewish law expounded in Genesis, Exodus, life of Abraham, Exodus out of Egypt, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, And in particular, in the first century, after the life of Jesus, there were Gentile new believers in Jesus who were being coerced to bear the Jewish sign of inclusion, namely male circumcision, to Judaize. English word on the top, Greek word on the bottom, the way it was written when Paul wrote it. That word there, to Judaize, until this series, I thought it meant to force someone to become Jewish. You were a Judaizer if you were forcing someone to come, become Jewish. But I've learned during the series that this verb is only used once in the Bible, and it's used to mean someone who chooses to become Jewish, a Gentile person who chooses to take on Jewish practices, even if they're under pressure or some sort of coercion. The only use of it in the Bible is right here, Galatians 2 verse 14, this world-changing, famous confrontation between Peter and Paul, 
Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, you know, that a Gentile person is free from Torah, Jesus Christ is Lord, and you can believe in him. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel because they were withdrawing from the Gentiles, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you're a Jew, we can see that, yet you live like a Gentile, that's obvious too, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs or that you force Gentiles to Judaize? Paul says, no point, <laughs> don't do it. It was always God's intention to free you from this. It's embedded in the gospel. Acting in line with the truth of the gospel means that you are free from Jewish Torah. So how do you apply this? Because <laughs> no one that I know in this room is tempted to Judaize, uh, to become, or to look Jewish. Is that your temptation? Please tell me afterwards if it is. No one's trying to avoid pork. No one's stoning their kids for disobedience. No one is taking off the Sabbath as a Saturday, not that I know of, not, not the same way. And no one's worried about threads or hoofs or milk. Kosher and conversations about circumcision are entirely a matter between parent, new parent, of a boy and obstetrician. And I, don't, I mean, unless Graham can tell us otherwise, Nobody I know is asking that question of their baby boys because of Torah reasons. I'm sure he's met a few in his time. So if that's the case, how do we apply this book? And another point, Paul says that they were tempted to, um, to believe another gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. How do you spot a similar danger today? And of course, arguments about Abraham in chapter 4 and Hagar and Sarah, they cut no power for us. They're not, it's not our narrative, at least not immediately. So how then do you read Galatians for life in modern Sydney? How do you spot a false gospel and believe the true one? Now, I've heard this illustration before, and I like it. People trained in identifying counterfeit money don't need to know every type of forgery on the market. They need to be flawless experts in the real thing. They need to know the real money, the real coin. When they know the real coin, then only then will their eyes catch the most sophisticated of fakes. I Googled this and found out that it, some guy said, I've heard this illustration a thousand times, and he wanted to know if it was true, and so he rang the Bank of Canada and Apparently it is true. The true people who conceive forgery are just experts in the real thing. That's why they spot the differences. Jesus is the money. The gospel is the coin, the pearl of great price. But from time to time, we need to spot the fakes. The way to spot the fake is to know the real thing. So my prayer for you and for me is that we know the real thing, that we, we are so soaked in the gospel. We know Jesus Christ, our liberator, he has borne fruit in our lives for God, and with all this activity of God, this knowing of Jesus Christ, that will living as free children of God, will be able to spot the fakes. So, eight things I learnt during this series. The first one was a surprise. I learnt uh, that the Christian life could be summed up this way: 
Christ formed in you. Paul in Galatians 4 verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, so Paul describes himself as a woman giving birth, get that, get your mind around that, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. I think this is a way of talking about the Christian life. That is, the Christian life is not just assenting to certain truths and defending them. It's not mere observance of the law or any laws or any system. The Christian life is like a new birth, as Jesus himself said. It's the resurrected Jesus going to work in you, Christ formed in you. This describes a new reality, even if it's painful. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. This new reality is dynamic. It's relational. It's spiritual. It can be painful, but it's wonderful. And it doesn't come without traction with the gospel. You've got to want to care. You've got to care. And if I can flip 4 verse 19, taking this from Paul's perspective, it's what I want for others. My dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You know, what parent didn't want this for their child? What Christian parent, I should say, doesn't want this for their child? But maybe initially the prayer is, Jesus, be formed in me. This is the money. <laughs> Second thing I learnt, that the coming of the Messiah has changed everything. I think this is the key to the whole book. God of all grace, you came. Paul is arguing here that the arrival of Jesus changes everything. That's why he can't go back. So the book isn't really a book really about just sort of arguing about certain doctrines. It really is a book about whether or not you have perceived the time of God's visitation, as Jesus himself said in Luke 19, the time of his coming upon you. I believe that a counterfeit gospel is anything that takes you back to a system that fails because the human heart is hard and needs the activity of God in it. We need a new heart. A counterfeit gospel is anything that takes you back to a system intended to fail, but fails nonetheless. You may as well go back to animal sacrifices to circumcision. You may as well go back to Egypt as to the Torah, says Paul. And this coming of the Messiah, this glorious change, is predicted from within Torah. It's not against Torah. The, the Deuteronomy itself says, you, you can't keep this law I am giving you. You'll need something to happen in your heart, a circumcision of the heart. You'll need to be redeemed. That's there in Deuteronomy. That's why the righteousness is apart from the Lord, comes from God, but to which the law and the prophets testify. The prophets testify and the law testifies it. The glorious change is articulated in the prophets. You haven't kept the law I gave you back then. You'll need a new heart, Ezekiel 36. You'll need not just a redemption, but a redeemer. And this redemption and this redeemer 
This gospel comes through Jesus Christ and it's for the world, which I think is the point of Isaiah 49, which read to us first. It's a famous servant song. Isaiah, from God, speaks of this unknown, unnamed figure, well, named as Israel, but then does something for Israel. So it can't simply be the nation of Israel. It speaks of someone known by God before birth, sharpened as an arrow in hidden places, speaking really of the coming Messiah, an Israelite, a king. Isaiah 49 verse 3, God said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. I'll display my splendor to the world. The unnamed figure, my servant, Israel redeems Israel, but for a purpose I will make you, my servant, a light to the Gentiles, non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And here we are. That's why the prophecy begins with, listen to me, you islands, you distant lands, and ends with kings and princes of the world seeing you and bowing down. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the Israelite who displays God's splendor, redeems Israel, and is a light to the Gentiles, both Jew and Gentile, such that island, islands and distant lands are to receive this news. Paul was making that news all across the known world at the time, and he was saying, believe in Jesus, and without Torah, without observance of Torah. Jesus has come as the Messiah, and this has changed everything. In Luke 19, Jesus described this as the time of God's visitation. Jesus weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, if you... If you only had known the significance of this moment, if you had known what would bring you peace, but you were not willing, therefore a new exile, anathema, for those who have not recognised the time of God's coming. In other words, the coming of Jesus is a forward movement from Israel, from death and hard hearts to the promise of a new heart and redemption coming of Jesus, light to the world. So there's no going back. To go back to Torah for Paul is to be like an Israelite who goes back to Egypt, to the slavery of exile, trying to claim that the system, the trellis works, but it doesn't work because of the human heart. That is, me in the flesh can't do what God has done by sending Jesus, we need a saviour and we got one. His name is Jesus. You got God. (laughs) Everything has changed, not just for ourselves. Paul opens the book with Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, but also to rescue us from the present evil age, not just us, but the whole world. Changed everything. Since he's changed everything, you can't tack him onto your Trellis, your agenda, your thing. I mean, in Galatians, their thing was from God. It was the Torah. And Paul says, you can't even do that. No matter how important you think your agenda is, you must yield to God's agenda. He's coming. Paul says in Galatians, you can't even do that with the Torah. 
can't go back to Torah, let alone anything else that you think is important for the world. I think you can see this when someone has a right-wing or a left-wing agenda that they think is important, so important, drives them, they really want it to happen, the thing they really want, they want other people to believe it, and so often Jesus becomes a person that you enlist for that agenda. You get Jesus on your side, you win the debate. And then that allows you to pressure or coerce your opponent with your agenda. And when I see this take place, and it takes place online fairly regularly, I often think to myself, I often think to myself, you've used Jesus for your agenda, you've tacked him on, but I often think to myself, if Jesus wasn't part of the agenda, the agenda would still be the thing that stands. That's the thing you want. A little bit like the agitator saying, the one thing we want, you know, we like Jesus, we just want you to keep Torah, keep our opponents happy. But for Paul, Jesus is the redeemer, everything's changed, and he rescued us from our own sins, from the present evil age. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that bears fruit in our lives, that we reject the flesh and all its works. Christ formed in you is the agenda. That's the agenda. Can't tack him onto yours. Fourth, the book of Galatians is about freedom. And true freedom is the freedom of a son of God, meaning an heir. You could say a child or a daughter, but in the context it means an heir. Jesus has changed everything, and the greatest existential change to this is you are free. You really are. You're free. By God's grace, you have been set free. Jesus said it. The Son sets you free. You are free indeed. He said to people who said, we've never been slaves of anyone. And Jesus says, if you've sinned, you're a slave to sin. And that's why if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Paul writes, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. But this is not the Western liberal idea of freedom. I'm free to do what I want any old time. This is not, I'm captain of my soul. I'm so glad I can be Christian. I'm loved. It's by grace. It's unconditional. I get to do whatever the heck I want to do. No, in the Galatians, it's the freedom of sonship. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that cries, Abba, Father. You've been set free from sin and death and judgment and exile, gods of wood and stone. You've been set free from Torah, the law, since Torah could not save you. You needed the son to set you free from sin. This is what free indeed means. And perhaps the best way to picture this is the prodigal son, the younger one who says, I want my share of the inheritance, and walks off. And you could look at him walking off and say, that's freedom. And under one definition, it is freedom. He's taken the things he needs. He's going off to spend the money the way he wants to spend the money. Jesus says he squanders his wealth in wild living, but that's not the language, I assume, that he would choose. He would say, this is what freedom is. But it isn't. He's captain of your own soul. It isn't freedom. As the prodigal discovered, sitting there in the pigsty of his own choices, and he knows that his freedom comes 
in admitting his sin, his unworthiness, and in his return to his father, true freedom comes with the embrace of his father, the spirit of his son into our hearts. The prodigal's freedom comes with the choruses and dancing of the grace of God. You've got God, you've been freed. The grace of God is where the money is. But freedom and grace, they aren't the natural state for sinful human beings. The natural state is self-defense. As grace is to yield to the love of God for the unworthy. So the fifth thing I discovered is that we need to take a stand for grace and fight for it. We need to fight for grace the way you have to fight for love. You have to fight to keep grace at the center. How? And one answer is don't be bullied in your heart by a secular worldview, another trellis, which isn't about Christ, his forgiveness, a new heart, new way to live. It's about another system, another agenda. Don't be bullied into a secular worldview. It isn't freedom, even if in the first place it looks like it. And secondly, we need to speak up, at least first in community. Paul did that in 2.14. I opposed Peter face to face because he was clearly in the wrong. I did it publicly because that's where the sin was committed. And he wrote Galatians. He thought about the money. He knew what the counterfeits were. And he wrote in 1 verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, in exile, anathema. Now you and I might say, well, Paul was an apostle and I'm not, so I can go my merry way without change. But I, the inherent message of Galatians is that Paul is writing to the lay people to say, resist the leaders. The letter is to you to join the resistance movement, that lay people resist the call from important people with their agendas from Jerusalem, with news from James, the Lord's brother. And Paul goes, take a stand. If, even if we preach a gospel, even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, you could have a spiritual experience saying, move away from all that is offered in Jesus Christ. Don't believe it. Stand firm then and do not let your souls be burdened again by the yoke of slavery, don't go back to Egypt, take a stand. Sixth, seek unity. There you go. That's all. Seek unity. <laughs> but if I read Galatians correctly, not at any cost. I think one of the main messages of Galatians is that Jew and Gentile are unified by faith. This is something I think important for us. Galatians is often understood to be a defense of the doctrine of justification by faith. Correct. But then it is framed as merely a way of getting to heaven, being saved, without having to do anything. Remember my friend Bill? Sold a pup. And therefore, Galatians is often used as a book to divide over doctrine who's correct and who's not correct about certain things. But the argument in Galatians is that justification by faith is about unity. It means that Jew and Gentile alike are under sin and Jew and Gentile alike can be redeemed by Christ's life. 
who together saved sinners, together heirs, together redeemed, not two tiers, not second-class citizens, if it's Jew and Gentile, by mere glorious, life-transforming faith. That's why there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's going to fight for that. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the purpose here in Galatians is to keep unity between formerly warring parties, Jew and Gentile. But inherent in the book of Galatians is not at any cost, namely that Paul will fight to keep this unity in place, even speaking against the agitators who wanted to create a second tier. I want to be unified in Christ, but I'm opposing people who create a second tier. In other words, he's not standing for abusers. He wants unity, won't stand for the abusers. Please bear in mind that almost every New Testament letter has a challenge in it to resist some form of, of false doctrine or teaching or a practice that will take you away from Jesus Christ. You could argue that half the New Testament is promoting grace and fighting for it and staying with the truth, usually against some threat of some kind. That means unity is important, but we're still going to need to fight. Now, you could ask me about this afterwards, but I'm chair, the chair of an organisation called City to City Australia. The best way to describe that is we're sort of Tim Keller's outfit here in Australia, not the CEO, there's other people who do the hard work, but I do chair the board. And one of the things I like about City to the City is its Catholicity of spirit, which doesn't mean we're Roman Catholic bowing to Rome. What it means is that we seek to be unified across the denominations precisely because, as the mantra of City to the City goes, the mantra is it takes the whole church to reach a city, not just one church. And so we're going to need to partner with Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals, but not at the expense of, say, for example, a cult who create two tiers. So we want to say, here are the unifying issues. We want to talk about, in fact, I'll send you a document, Tim Keller's uh, doctrinal uh, statement for City to the City, where he talks about primary issues, secondary ones that you can argue about, and then disqualifying issues. It's a really beautiful document. If you'd like to see it, I'm happy to send it to you. But it really is a document that seeks unity, but at the same time, make sure that we fight for the gospel. Seventh, be so free, I learned this, be so free that you choose to serve others in love. You are free, but 5.13, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, to do whatever you want to do, Rather, as an alternative, serve one another humbly in love. You are free, but in the Christian gospel, you are not captain of your soul. Jesus is, he washed the disciples' feet, and he said, a servant is not above his master, you go and do likewise. The free son of God went freely to the cross to free you. Amen? Be like Jesus. Lastly, allow the Spirit of God to produce fruit in your life. This is the big change 
that comes with the big freedom that you gain from the big news that the Messiah has come. We no longer submit to, promote, and defend works of the flesh, living life the way you want to live it. Paul writes, these works of the flesh are obvious, really, and um, it's obvious that you've got to have something really strongly devious going on to promote them, to defend them. He says sexual immorality, you know, to, to sort of do whatever you want rather than to ask what God wants. Impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, you say, that's not tempting, but maybe hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, in other words, uses of power over another. Selfish ambition to be curved in on self. Dissensions and factions to use one group of people as leverage over another. That happens all the time. And envy and, of course, the big Aussie night. Defensive drunkenness, the big party, orgies and the like. This is obvious. Don't defend them. I don't think Paul is trying to make you insecure. He is saying if this is the life you live, that is you defend and promote it, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be sold a pup. Don't be deceived. 6 verse 7, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That's not you if you've crucified the flesh with its desires and passions, if you belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you witness then God do this thing called fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We're not talking about law. And so, be open to the sunlight of God's grace. Let God put water and light on your soul, your redeemed soul. Let him do the pruning, even when it hurts, May all of you, body and soul, be planted, body and soul, be planted in the soil of good community and grow as believers in Christ. U.S. author Rachel Gilson became a believer after coming to Yale as an intelligent, beautiful atheist. But there at Yale, she met Jesus and everything changed. She writes of her conversion, and what you're about to see, I think is going to be my new conversion story, even possibly bigger than C.S. Lewis's reluctant convert in all of England. Listen to this. On becoming a Christian, maybe this is you tonight. Maybe this is you tonight. You see, she writes, I'd been transported to a new reality from the flesh to the spirit. I wasn't bearing the impossible weight of being in the center of my universe any longer. That's what it is to sin. I was orbiting a new and better sun, Jesus Christ. There was warmth and growth there, life I hadn't known before. I never expected to find in Christianity a vitality or to experience Jesus as my saviour and my friend. Yet that is who he is. I found myself 
deepening my roots of faith and growing on a formerly foreign trellis. She found the money, the pearl of great price, the treasure worth selling everything for. She found the coin, the real coin. And so she's able to spot, spot the counterfeit, which is what I believe she does in her books. Not the old Egypt, a new reality. Not death, but life. Not withering on the vine, but growth. Not centered around me, but around God, with the warmth and growth that comes through new life in Jesus Christ. May God grant us the same joy. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your grace is amazing. And so we ask you to show us, maybe tonight, this new reality, this power from above, this redemption, this new heart that the Torah, let alone any other law, could not give us because it was weakened by hard hearts, the sinful man in the flesh. But you have done what the flesh could not do. You have sent Jesus to live the life I should have lived, to die the death that I deserved and to rise again to new life that Christ might be present, not just among us now as Will started our service, two or three gathered together, Christ is there present, but even more than that, even perhaps even more powerful than that, we claim Jesus Christ present in our hearts, risen from the dead. We want Christ formed in me, bearing fruit in me, transforming my life through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.